This episode of Truth's Table is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers, publishers of children's books for all readers. Our mission is to ignite a universal passion for reading by creating books for everyone. Visit penguinrandomhouse.com. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, See How you doing, girl? You know, although we've come to the end of the road, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a song lyric musical kind of day, you know that, right? So some, sometimes only song lyrics can, can help explain where we are in this moment. So yeah, we're wrapping up, E, we're wrapping up. We are. We are wrapping up, y'all. Yes. Come to the end of the road. We still, we can't let go. Okay. <laughs> There's more learning to do today. More learning. <laughs> there is much more learning to do, y'all. You, you know, we have, I feel like this, this might be our longest series where we have actually started the season For with, sure. you know, um, uh, where we continue the season from the beginning till the end. Um, and so we going to learn today. This is the capstone the capstone yes, of yes. our series, y'all. And, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm really excited about this one. This is our last mm-hmm. interview for the season, y'all. Season five is coming to a close, y'all. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I think we would be remiss if we did not have this, um, this interview, okay? And uh, the topic on the table, y'all, is fugitive pedagogy. And I'm like, what, what, what? Uh, and we have Dr. Jarvis Givens here at the table to teach us about fugitive pedagogy. Hey, Dr. Givens, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? We are good. We are good and going to be better after we learn from <laughs> you today. And so, uh, y'all, just in case you do not know um, about Dr. Givens and fugitive pedagogy, why don't I tell you a little something about Dr. Jarvis? Then I'm going to tell you a little something about the book. Okay. Uh, Jarvis R. Givens is a native of Compton, California. He is an assistant professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education, a faculty affiliate in the Department of African American African and African American Studies, and the Suzanne Young Murray Assistant Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. Gibbons earned his undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of California, Berkeley. He is a Mellon Mays Ford Foundation and Gates Fellow. Jarvis Gibbons is a co-director of a major new research project called the Black Teacher Archive with Imani Perry of Princeton University. Givens is also the co-editor of Dare We Say Love, Supporting Achievement in the Education Life of Black Boys. He lives in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And so y'all know about the book. Okay, fugitive pedagogy is a fundamental part of black education during slavery and in the post-emancipation period centered on African-Americans concealing important elements of their learning and masking their true intentions for education. In Fugitive Pedagogy, Dr. Givens chronicles the efforts of Carter G. Woodson, a veteran school teacher during the Jim Crow era, as an iconic example of how African-Americans strategically subverted an anti-Black school system as they were coerced to comply with white authority. 
Woodson, who went on to found Black History Month, spent his career fighting the miseducation of the Negro by helping teachers and students to see themselves and their mission as set apart from an anti-Black world. Welcome to the table, Dr. Givens. My goodness, that is rich, and I'm excited to learn from you uh, today. Uh, I, I, of course, I, I hear the sisters of the tables asking me, <laughs> Asking me, what, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> Can you break this down in layman terms? Teach us today. What is fugitive pedagogy? What does it mean? Right. Um, well, first of all, thank you for that very generous introduction and for um, sharing a little bit about the book. Um, and I, I love the opportunity to kind of begin our conversation by talking about uh, fugitive pedagogy you know, why that language, why that, why I chose to use that as a frame to tell this um, kind of hidden history of, of Black teachers in many ways. Um, and so really quickly, I'll just say that the kind of short version of what fugitive pedagogy means is that it's, it's referring to Black people's physical and intellectual acts that uh, they employ to challenge anti-Blackness in education. Um, and the language of fugitive is really referring to the fact that many of these actions that they engaged in often took place in discreet or partially concealed fashion because of the kind of surveillance and violence that Black people lived under when we think about the period of enslavement up and through Jim Crow. Um, but I want to take a step back, you know, beyond just the kind of shortened version of that definition to talk about what really kind of initially prompted me to try to offer a different kind of language to talk about what many might refer to as saying, oh, well, that just sounds like Black people's resistance um, and how they existed. Um, but I, I personally found the language of resistance to be uh, accurate, but also insufficient to fully embrace and acknowledge the dynamic um, aspects of Black people's efforts to navigate power in the context of schools. So one of the things that I was always struck with when I was in graduate school studying the history of black education was, you know, the fact that there were these anti-literacy laws that explicitly criminalized black education. So the first anti-literacy law, for instance, comes into um, play in 1740. And so this is before the United States is even founded as a nation. So in 1740, um, the slave code of South Carolina is established in response to the Stono Rebellion of 1739. This was a slave revolt um, that ended in a number of white people being masters being killed, but these enslaved group of people who were trying to pursue their freedom by trying to move south toward the area of kind of, you know, what we think of, of, of Florida, essentially. Um, but one of the ways, one of the responses was to criminalize black literacy because it was suspected that the organization of this rebellion um, was kind of, you know, was, was done in part through using the written word to kind of com communicate and organize this act of this uprising, essentially. So there's a way in which e education and literacy becomes linked to black rebellion and black revolt in the time of slavery, even before the United States is formally established as an independent nation. So the, you know, the slave code of, of 1740 in South Carolina is the first of a number of these kinds of anti-literacy laws that would proliferate up and through the 1800s, up and through the period just leading up to the Civil War. I'm saying this to say that Black education was literally a criminal act. Therefore, Black enslaved people 
And we have plenty of examples of this. If anyone has ever read the kind of, you know, the story of Frederick Douglass and a key part of his narrative and many of the slave narratives in general has to do with enslaved black people essentially pursuing literacy and trying to assert control over their minds as a, as, as a means of also asserting control over their bodies, right? This is a kind of ongoing trope and a recurring theme in the slave narratives and in early black um uh, in the early black literary tradition in general. And obviously Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass literally writing his slave narrative as a fugitive slave, right? Meaning that he's after he had run away from uh, enslavement and then writing his narrative is literally an enactment of this tradition of fugitive pedagogy, Absolutely. right? Because there's, there was a belief and in some ways it was true that, you know, black people's pursuit of education was also tied to their efforts to kind of, um, to challenge their physical bondage as well, right? So there's that scene in Frederick Douglass's narrative when his master says, his master scolds his, his wife for when he finds her teaching a young Frederick Douglass how to read and write. He says, you know, literacy would ruin a slave. It'll make him unfit for the task that he's supposed to do. And he right. says, this being accomplished, he'll be running away with himself, right? Um, literally, the physical act of running away was often linked um, with enslaved people that might have had access to literacy because they might have, one, forged a pass, right, to actually allow them to kind of uh, to kind of move about and try to pursue freedom. But also because this engagement with the intellectual world in reading and writing suggested that Black people also had an interior life, which was also challenging the kind of um, the dynamics of power within the slave uh, master kind of uh, dynamic within the context of slavery. So fugitive pedagogy is building from that important political history of black education that develops in the time period of slavery and connecting that to the ongoing subversive acts that black people did even after black education was legally permitted in the post-Civil War era because we know just because black people were no longer physically enslaved that there continued to be all sorts of restraints imposed on their political and social activity. And education was one of the major sites where Black people people continue to experience violence and aggressive neglect, right? So between 1866 and 1876, over 630 Black schools were burned down, right? And so when we think about this context, we have to understand that even as Black people were legally permitted to pursue education, they continue to have to navigate this, um, these, this violent context. So fugitive pedagogy is drawing a line between those subversive acts of enslaved people and the ongoing subversive acts that Black people continue to do in the late 1800s up and through the Jim Crow period of the 1900s. Um, for instance, the book opens with the teacher secretly reading from a book called The Negro in Our History written by Carter G. Woodson. Um, in the 1930s in Louisiana. And I'm saying yes. those kinds of subversive acts by Black teachers that persisted in the Jim Crow period are not unrelated to those kind of subversive literary and educational actions employed by the enslaved um, you know, folks during prior to the Civil War. I'm saying there's that's an ongoing, that's a through line in the story of Black education that we actually need to pull out um, and use as an interpretive frame for how we remember and how we recall this important part of our history. 
No, really, really interesting. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, uh, Dr. Givens, is that one of the things that education is able to do, it's able to present before children or uh, and adults uh, an idea of who uh, who deserves honor, who deserves scrutiny, whose name needs to be known or must be known. Um, and even when I think about your work here, I, I thought about the way that Black educators had the ability to lift up the runaway slave now as the person who deserved honor, yeah. who deserved recognition. And that's one of, the, one of the things I was thinking about. Can you talk a little bit about some of the unique um, emphases that Black educators highlighted under this paradigm, and, and for example, like the one that I just that you you know and I just referenced, right? Um, as part of their kind of pedagogy package, right? They're kind of their mm-hmm. their new must know, must haves in the formation of the young black mind. Yeah, that that's a that's such a um, thoughtful and um, important question, and I appreciate you for asking that because it also gets to this other layer of why fugitive pedagogy became important for me. Um, it was important both because of that political um, history and that, and that social history that I just laid out, but it also is about this in, these intellectual questions that are at the that was that were at the heart of Black education, right? In terms of what's what are the stories, what are the histories, what are the kind of systems of knowledge that are important to present to Black students to help them interpret their material realities, but also the kind of heritage of struggle that they um, our descendants of and that that they have as a resource as they try to make sense of their own worlds, right? One of the things that I was super, super interested in when I first got, start, started looking at these textbooks written by Carter G. Woodson, but also Black teachers before him. So for instance, there's a Black woman named Lila Amos Pendleton, who was also a public school teacher in Washington, D.C., who started, who wrote a textbook in 1912. There was a number, another black teacher before her named Edward Johnson in North Carolina, who also wrote a textbook um, and in the 1800, in the late 1800s. And one of the things that stood out to me was the kind of uh, proliferation of this, re- these representations of fugitive slaves and black fugitive life. Um, so, you know, the Haitian revolution, stories about uh, maroon communities in the dismal swamps of Virginia or Suriname in Jamaica, but also the stories of people like Sojourner Truth, of Nat Turner, were received a lot of coverage in these historical textbooks that Black teachers were creating. Um, and it's really important when we, to contextualize this against the complete absence and omission of any of these narratives of Black revolt and Black resistance in the mainstream kind of official uh, dominant his, history and social studies curriculum of the time period, or even literature, right? And think when we think about the kinds of novels and literature that Black students were being presented with to read in the formal curriculum. So what we see is that even as these histories of you know slave revolts and fugitive slaves and that history of rebellion was kind of written off and not seen as a as uh, valuable knowledge in the mainstream curriculum, we see Black teachers developing very, very early on a counter-curricular model, right? We see them reclaiming historical figures that have been written off as, you know, crazy and demented and deluded, the way way that people like Nat Turner was written about, Mm -hmm. even someone like the white radical abolitionist John Brown, who was written off as crazy 
in mainstream white textbooks if he's referenced at all. Whereas these were people who are kind of held up as important heroes uh, and who said these people are not crazy, but the society was crazy. Right. Um, that was built on the enslavement and the debasement of black people. So we see this counter educational tradition developing really, you know, in the way that black teachers are commemorating fugitive slaves in the curriculum that they're developing and saying that these are actually heroes that black students should understand as having important um, insights and moral and ethical kind of um, ideas for their own plight as black people living in an anti-black world, right? Um, And so the fugitive slave becomes a major, major figure in in those curricular uh, politics of black teachers found in their textbooks, but also found in the, the, the name, school naming practices we find in places like St. Louis, Missouri, schools named after Toussaint Louverture, right, in the, eight, in the 1880s, right, the, the kind of leader of the Haitian Revolution. We see right. schools named after people like Harriet Tubman, but also named after Frederick Douglass, um, right, who are important political leaders, but they're also fugitive slaves and represent a very particular line of history in Black political life. Um, that I started to notice as a trend and I wanted to lift up. And so that's also part of the reason why I emphasize this language of fugitivity um, and Black fugitive life in this framework that I'm offering in the book to talk about Black education. So it's it's this idea of fugitive pedagogy manifests at multiple levels, both in terms of documenting the subversive history of refusing and challenging anti-literacy laws in slavery and secretly teaching Black students ideas um, and that were counter to dominant curriculum in the classroom, but it's also literally referring to fugitive slaves and the ro- the relationship between fugitive slaves and this kind of radical history of black education um, that were represented in their lives, but also in the ways that black teachers like Carter G. Woodson and Lila Amos Pendleton chose to remember them and teach about their lives to students. Mm. My goodness, that's so fascinating and such a um, so important um, for us to to continue to see the black education through the framework of fugitive pedagogies. I, it's, I've see, I find it to be a very precise um, term. And so I, I'm curious um, about, of course, the, the subject, right. You know, of, of your book, the, uh, the person that you're focusing on is Carter G. Woodson. Um, and, you know, when I, I, when I think about Carter G. Woodson, I think of, and I think about fugitive pedagogy, I think about how it's applicable, not just only in the educational um, setting, but even with uh, when it comes to, say, Christianity in America, right? Um, and we talk about, you know, uh, enslaved Africans and, and, and the, the slave master version um, of, of, of faux Christianity, right? That Frederick D- Douglass, of course, uh, 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 lifts up and, and, and annihilates, if you will, um, versus uh, the, the, the faith of Black Christians and that, that even enslaved Africans laid hold to that helped to inform their resistance. And so when I think about Carter G. Woodson, I'm often thinking about sometimes the ways that uh, much of his history is not always, um, it's sometimes underappreciated in the fact that uh, he he himself was a, a believer, right? So a lot of his work was informed by his own Baptist upbringing, um, and then sometimes just his own uh, work as a public, uh, as a teacher. I think it's sometimes not always um, 
I, I always lifted up, right? Because we take away Black History Month, which is great. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Givens, why you think that is? Why some of uh, some of that history about um, the fullness, let's say, the full biography, let's say, of um, Carter G. Woodson is often uh, underappreciated. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? That's why I really appreciate that your book does center on him. Yeah, you know, for me, that's still something that I'm I'm still working through and trying to um, to, to write against is, um, you know, most people think about Carter G. Woodson and it's, you know, the father of black history is the large frame that we tend to think about. And we emphasize his role as the second black person to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard um, in 1912. And of course, we know that W.B. Du Bois was the first person to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard in 18. Uh, 96. But, you know, I find his identity as a historian to be very, very important, but not in in my mind, not more important than his 30 year career as a public school teacher. Right. Um, Because the political orientation to engaging in the process of producing history and reconceptualizing history, both both American history and world history um, and insisting that black people had a history worthy of respect, and that was essential to understanding the modern world, is not just coming from his engagement with the historical profession, but is deeply motivated by um, questions that he has about the politics of education, right? Of course, we know that his most important, you know, one of his most memorable, you know, books and texts was The Miseducation of the Negro, Uh, but in in large part because his entire uh, career had to do with navigating the politics and the kind of uh, the violent uh, oppression that black people experience in the context of schools. One of the things that we know Woodson says in The Miseducation of the Negro is that there would be no lynching if it did not start in the schoolhouse, right? So Woodson understood this intellectual work of trying to rewrite the system of knowledge, right? And understanding history as foundational to any system of knowledge. Um, we, We have to understand his work to do that as always a part of a much larger political mission of trying to challenge the material realities of black people in uh, in an anti-black world, in a Jim Crow world that's reflected in lynchings and kind of the, the kind of the Jim Crow car, the whites only and colored only signs. But Woodson would say that these are merely expressions of the very knowledge system that undergirds the society in which we live, right? Um, and these are things that he's always holding in place and he would say that schools are one of the made are the kind of major the you know major institution where these ideas are worked out and are transferred into the minds of students who then go out in the world and express these ideas these anti-black sentiments um, in the social world, right? Um, and so I, I would say that you know it's easy to kind of hold on to his identity as a historian because we have Black History Month, but the reason that we don't under one of the things I'm trying to offer is that, but we have to understand that Black History Month is not just something that he created as a historian. It's an outgrowth of the or on the of the political organizing and intellectual organizing of Black teachers. Literally, it you know it becomes a holiday, starts as Negro History Week in 1926, but it really grows out of the the kinds of work that Black teachers are doing in local communities to try to challenge you know, racist curriculum to try to challenge the exclusion of black life and culture from the context of schools. Right. And this is the world that Woodson is a part of. 
where he's exposed to these ideas, where he is the product of these ideas as well. Because one of the things I show in the book is that, you know, Carter G. Woodson himself is the child and student of formerly enslaved black people. Both of his parents were former slaves and his first teachers were his formerly enslaved uncles, right, who were his first teachers in a one room schoolhouse. And even before he went on to begin high school at the age of 20 years old, we see him working in the coal mines in West Virginia. And after long days of working in the mines, you have these black adult men who are illiterate and who are Civil War veterans and former slaves asking him to come into their homes in the evenings for them to gather around him, for him to read out loud from newspapers, from mm-hmm. books published by black scholars, for them to interact with the with literate culture, really, even though they themselves cannot decipher words on the page. They're using him as a kind of a medium to allow them to interact with the literate with with the literate world. Right. Um, And in that process, Woodson comes to recognize that these men, though they are illiterate, similar to his mother and his father, are also important kind of carriers of knowledge. Right. People who have a different perspective and a different set of claims on knowledge. Right. Um, And so this is the kind of these are the resources that he draws on as a teacher and as someone who's getting a PhD at Harvard, where where his professors flat out say that the Negro has no history, right? Um, And these are are all of the things that come to play in the work that he did as a historian, right? His work in the classroom, his work in informal educational settings where he's engaging in this practice of communal literacy. All of this has to be accounted for in order to truly appreciate what Woodson was conceptualizing when he develops Negro History Week and what we now inherit as Black History Month. Um, And so all of that stuff is important. But, you you know, the point that you mentioned about the relationship between uh, the Black church and Black education is spot on as well in Woodson's own life. Right. Not only was he a teacher, you know, through the week, but, you know, he was for a large part of his time. He was also a Sunday school teacher um, at the, you know, the church that he attended, where he would often would be teaching students that he likely had in the classroom during the week, but also um, their parents as well. Um, And, you know, the subversive, there's a very intimate relationship between Black spirituality and Black education when we think about how it develops in the context of slavery, right? The invisible institution and the hush harbors uh, where Black folks are kind of going to express their own version of of religious and, and spiritual life um, that's counter to or that's you know, cr- a critique of the kind of Christianity imposed by their masters that justifies their enslavement is also a place where black educational practices are developing um, in these very subversive ways. One of the primary motivations for black people wanting to get become literate is so that they, them, they can read the Bible for themselves and to interpret the text on their own terms because they're suspicious of the interpretations of the Bible pr- provided by their masters that are justifying their bondage, right? Absolutely. And of course, we know that many of those who led slave revolts and slave rebellions were oftentimes religious leaders, whether this is Gabriel Prosser or Nat Turner, who were also literate, right? And so there's this close, intimate relationship between Black uh, spiritual practices or the invisible institution to lift up Al Robitaille's work, who just recently passed away, but in in relationship to Black education um, in the context of slavery as well. And this persists um, after emancipation. 
Sorry if that was a long-winded answer. I'm going to be sure. I'm gonna be more no, 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 no. You never have to apologize here at True Stable. You were breaking it down, and I was loving every minute of it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Dr. Gibbons. You know what, y'all? Let's take a quick, quick commercial break so that we can continue this conversation about peda- uh, fugitive pedagogy. So don't go nowhere. We'll be right back. Ayana Gray's epic new young adult fantasy debut is here, Beasts of Prey by Ayana Gray. In this blockbuster fantasy series perfect for fans of Holly Black and Tomi Adeyemi, fate binds two Black teenagers together as they journey into a magical jungle to hunt down the vicious monster who is threatening their home. But as they begin to uncover ancient deadly secrets, it quickly becomes unclear whether they are the hunters or the hunted. Netflix will be adapting this young adult debut into major motion picture, so look out for that. Truth Table listeners can purchase Beasts of Prey by Ayana Gray at penguinrandomhouse.com or wherever books are sold. And we are back at the table with Dr. Gibbons, the author of Fugitive Pedagogy. Y'all, we are learning so very much in this here series. Steve, what you got? I know you got a good question bubbling up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've I've been thinking about, you know, just how there's really nothing new under the sun. And um, some of the themes that you highlight, Dr. Gibbons, in, you know, the the 1800s into the early 1900s that we see in uh, Black education and specifically fugitive pedagogy, as you are describing for us today, it, it's it's mirroring a bit of what we see today. Um, and certainly, um, as we think about the juxtaposition between, for example, honoring fugitive slaves, and then there are people who are honoring Confederate rebels at the same time. Or today in our contemporary context, right, when we think about the fight against uh, what people are calling critical race theory, but any really acknowledgement of reality of Black <laughs> black history um, in our educational system. And it just seems to me that this is this tension, uh, this tension about uh, the priorities of education or the philosophies of education, whether it's between fugitive pedagogy and, and white dominance, is just a thread through the American story. Can you talk a little bit about these competing educational philosophies, maybe name them for us, if you get the kind of the essence of my question, um, and, and put that into context for us maybe today. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think that there is uh, definitely, uh, you know, I couldn't have predicted that the kind of current state of affairs with the legislative campaigns against CRT, I could never have predicted that this would have happened at the time when the book had, you know, was re- around the time the book was released. Um, or even, you know, debates around what pe- people today call are calling, you know, anti-racist teaching, uh, because there are so many ways in which the questions that people are raising in this current moment are directly related to this much longer history of intellectual and political struggle in Black education and that history. Um, but, you know, there's a I'm trying to think of this quote by Toni Morrison. She's given, I know she, she's given this speech in Chicago in 19... 19- uh, 91, I believe. And she says something, I'm paraphrasing here. She says, nothing is so fought over as the approach to knowledge and its parameters. I believe there's, that's close to a direct quote. She says, nothing is more fought over than the approach to knowledge and its parameters. Um, and I think that that is, you know, so she's writing about this kind of backlash to efforts of, for multicultural education in the early nineties. Um, and the way that that's being 
read as kind of uh, people, you know, people of colors and their effort in the and their efforts to politicize education, right, <laughs> um, by naming race explicitly in the context of knowledge and in the practices of, of education. And of course, for folks like Black folks and Indigenous communities have always known that education is always fundamentally fundamentally political, right? It has never not been a kind of political act um, in, in the context of this country and really anywhere else. Um, and so one of the things that I see happening in the current moment is, you know, around this idea of CRT is that a number of people are kind of, um, are rightfully concerned, but also shocked at this kind of uh, revanchism and this violent uh, backlash to limit and restrict how we teach about race and the history of racial inequality in the context of schools. Even though people are referring to it as CRT, it really has to do with a level of discomfort around um, naming, play, placing the history of racial chattel slavery and settler colonialism at the center of the narrative we tell about the American project, right? For many people, uh, naming it in that way is complicated because it forces us to have to be accountable to that history in, in ways in the contemporary moment that not everyone is, is prepared to do. Um, and I'm particularly thinking about the kind of white backlash in, ter in terms of uh, and people that are invested in this, exception, this narrative of American exceptionalism that find that hard to fathom. Um, but one of the things that I've been trying to share both with my students and anyone else that I talk with is that, you know, perhaps I, I don't know that we should be completely, you know, shocked at, at this moment. Right. Because the kind of the moment of diversity, equity and inclusion and and, and belonging on campuses and the DEI consulting industry and all that kind of stuff is a fairly new phenomenon. Right. You know, so. Pre, that slightly precedes, but also goes up and through the Obama era. Um, but that's a small period of time when we think about the much larger timeline of, of the, you know, the history of the United States. And the much the longer timeline, when we look at the longer timeline, what we're seeing right now with these legislative campaigns to restrict how we teach about race and racial inequality in schools is much more consistent with the longer history of American education. Right. And we see that most clearly when we look at the experiences of black teachers, the kinds of surveillance they experienced and the kind of um, restrictions imposed on black education, both during the period of enslavement up and through Jim Crow um, and, and even and even beyond that period. Right. Um, and so that's one of the things that I offer is that this is actually quite consistent with the, the dominant themes in education um, that we see when it comes to kind of race and the parameters of knowledge in this country um, and who has access to who, who's who's recognized as authoritative figures to be able to offer authoritative claims on what constitutes knowledge, what should be taught in schools um, and whose stories should be centered. Right. That's have been that's been an ongoing kind of negotiation. And black people have always had a lot of political clarity around that. Um, you know, for the larger part of African-American history. And we see that political clarity embodied in people like Carter G. Woodson and teachers like Tessie McGee, who's that teacher I referred to in the beginning of my book, who's secretly reading from Carter G. Woodson's textbook in her rural classroom in Louisiana in the 1930s, right? The height of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. 
and she had that book on her lap. I just thought that was so, <laughs> it was such a vivid image, right? Of, uh, of, uh, uh, if, if fugitive pedagogy was a person, <laughs> so, <laughs> is what came to mind, right? right. That, uh, that, uh, that scenario. You know, what I found uh, fascinating about your book, um, Dr. Gibbons was, or is the ways, um, in which you put, uh, Carter G. Woodson into conversation with other, uh, thinkers in the Black diaspora. And I'm curious uh, about, you know, why you did that, why, why you thought that was important to, uh, to approach, uh, to, to include that in this book. Yes. Um, thank you for that question. And also, I just want to say Tetsu McGee is the embodiment of fugitive pedagogy, which is why I like open with her narrative, not only because black women were the overwhelming majority of black teachers um, during this time period, but I also, like you said it perfectly, this kind of, um, you know, this personification or this embodied practice is like literally the awareness of surveillance yes. in the context of schools informed the intellectual work black teachers did, but also physical things that they did by conceal, literally physically concealing a textbook in her lab because yes. of an awareness that white school att- uh, officials could easily drop by um, black class black classrooms, which they often did, right? And we have plenty of accounts of this. Um, but that idea of fugitive pedagogy being an embodied practice is also something that I tried to tease out and why I wanted to open with that scenario in the book is because it illuminates both the intellectual work, but also the kind of physical and embodied actions that Black people did to literally navigate the constraints of, of white supremacy in the context of schooling. Um, in the context of Jim Crow schools. But so to this other question you asked, thank you. Uh, you all, y'all are asking all the like right questions, all the <laughs> good questions. And, you know, there's a, in this current moment, there's a lot of interest in thinking about, you know, black internationalism. And I think that that's very important. But one of the things that I wanted to kind of lift up is to say that we actually have a very long, you know, black folks, many of the you know, black folks have often been thinking about their experiences and suffering in the context of the U.S. in relationship to Black suffering um, in a much, in a global context. Um, And, you know, you have folks like Carter G. Woodson and these teachers who are drawing on narratives about, you know, even as it's a book about the Negro in our history, which is supposed to be about American history, we also see these teachers drawing on the stories of the Haitian Revolution and slave revolts in Jamaica and in Brazil, right? And in and naming things like you know the colonization in Africa and condemning those things because they understand the you know anti-blackness as a global phenomenon. What we what we call anti-blackness today, they understood this to be a global phenomenon. Um, and someone like Carter G. Woodson, it became important for me because Carter G. Woodson explicitly named the you know the anti-black practices of missionary education. Uh, organizations in sub-Saharan Africa and realized that the same white philanthropists who were funding and manipulating Black education in the South were also funding and manipulating Black education in sub-Saharan Africa. He writes about this explicitly in The Miseducation of the Negro, and he also publicly writes about this in condemning these white philanthropic organizations and philanthropic leaders for manipulating uh, Black education, right? Um, And so someone like Woodson had this global perspective um, and it shaped his analysis of the experience of black people um, in the, in the U S. Um, and, but I, but I think it's also important because there's just so many 
kind of similarities in terms of, and I'm teaching this a class right now, uh, it's called Anti-Racist Education in Global and Historical Context. And one of the big things that I'm doing with this class is I'm getting a lot of people in the class who want to become, you know, anti-racist teachers. And part of me teaching the class is my kind of some of, you know, my uh, some of the issue I have with the kind of popularity of the term right now because of its lack of historical engagement, oftentimes in the way that it's employed. But I also wanted to show that this tradition, the, the black tradition of challenging racism and challenging anti-blackness in the context of school is a, is a tradition that exceeds the United States, right? It transcends the nation state of the United States. And it also kind of stretches across time. And in order for us to have a deep conceptual understanding of what it means to challenge anti-blackness in the context of schools, I think requires us to have um, a, a mature perspective on blackness uh, in, in a global context, right? The transit, this transatlantic slave trade was not just about the United States, okay. right? Um, the politics of race in the U.S. Uh, were think were exported and shaped global economic systems in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places as well as America expanded its its reach as an empire. And in order for us to understand black suffering and black and black resistance in the U.S., um, requires us to put that in conversation with a much larger conversation about Black people's experience in education in the modern world. And so that's what I wanted to do with that piece, um, to kind of open up space for, for us to think about it in that way. Awesome. Really, really helpful, uh, Dr. Givens. You know, I'm sitting here reflecting on just the title of the book alone, right? Which we haven't, we haven't gone through all the subtitles very well <laughs> today. <laughs> but um, due to the pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the art of Black teaching. And so I'm, I'm really uh, appreciative of really the art of your teaching uh, during this podcast today, because I feel like really unpacking things. And at best, you know, education, the ed educational enterprise is a form of art, both a science, but also an art. Um, and so I'm really grateful for the way that you've been handling our questions today. I did want to hear and let our uh, the sisters at the table have an opportunity to hear a bit about your story. I'm the daughter of a black educator, and I'm just curious about what led you to your field of study, um, that eventually got you to this book. And then my second question is about uh, Dare We Say Love, this this kind of uh, project that you have specifically looking at the education of and support of Black boys. So if you could lift up those two things for that, I know we're eager to hear. Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, thanks for sharing the your um, your kind of personal relationship to this history in terms of coming from uh, you know, a family of educators. Um, and, you know, for me personally, I, I would consider, uh, you know, no one in my family were educators, but I had such amazing teachers my entire life. Um, you know, I mentioned I was from Compton, California. Uh, I'm, I'm a first generation high school graduate and college graduate, so on and so forth. Um, but I, I had black teachers my entire life from preschool up and through high school. Um, I attended a small black parochial school in Compton, California um, that I didn't that I always enjoyed. And I've always had a positive experience in relationship to school and education. All the majority of my classmates, many of whom I'm still friends with today, enjoyed our experience at that K through eight school that I attended um, in Compton, um, as well as the, the public high school that I attended in Watts, which was over 75 percent black. The majority of the teachers were also African-American which I know now was an anomaly 
from the majority of schools in Compton and Los Angeles during that time period. I just so happened to be to have had this experience. And I really feel like was kind of prepared to engage these kinds of questions that I'm engaging in um, in my research. Um, But one of the things that I did not learn or that I did not come to appreciate until I got to graduate school, um, because I didn't go to graduate school to study education, to be clear, I was raised asking completely different questions. Um, But I read a book called Their Highest Potential, which is about a high achieving black school in the Jim Crow South in North Carolina. And it's by a scholar named Vanessa Siddle Walker. I was so struck by the resonance between this story of this community school in North Carolina uh, in the, you know, 1930s through 1950s and the experiences that I had in terms of the relationships between teachers and students and the community and parents at this school that I attended in Compton. Uh, But then it uh, dawned on me that all of the teachers that I had at this black parochial school in Compton were all educated in the Jim Crow South. Um, You know, many of them had moved into Compton after white people kind of moved out of the city around the time of the Watts uprising um, and this, the school that I attended was previously a predominantly white school. But by the time I got there in the 1990s, all of the teachers and all of the students were black, um, even though it was Episcop- an Episcopalian school, though none of us were Episcopalian. <laughs> um, uh, but, the, you know, the principal of the school was a black woman who was educated in a segregated school in Lake Providence, Louisiana. She went on to study at Southern University and began teaching at the Southern University Laboratory School. Um, And she came to this school as it was in transition. And by the time I got there, she had essentially recreated um, many of the kind of cultural norms and educational practices that she understood to be good and necessary for a meaningful education for black children in the context of this school. Right. This consists of every morning reciting poems by black poets, singing the black national anthem as a school community every morning, every day of my life from preschool up and through eighth grade. And so these were the kind of norms that I was exposed to that were pretty consistent with a lot of the stuff that I'm reading about and writing about in the history of black education. Um, So I initially became interested in those questions because of that, the the similarities between my personal experience and what I was seeing, what I saw in that one book by Vanessa Siddle Walker. And then that led me to kind of delve more into it, came across these textbooks by Carter G. Woodson. And I decided that I wanted to try to recuperate um, and tell a better story and a more nuanced story about black education prior to desegregation that didn't, you know, that didn't, you know, write off and uh, and negate the fact that segregation was a deeply violent and terrible experience and that structural inequality was real and that black schools were denied resources and were subjected to violent terror. Right. But that in addition to that. Black people also created a lot of important pedagogical practices that we can also look to as good and important, even while condemning the structural context in which they did this work. And in many ways, we've been taught to just condemn Black education prior to Brown um, and, and, and nothing else. Obviously, there are some variations. Some people, you know, push back against the flattened narrative. But for the most part, you know, that's the dominant narrative that I feel like I had been exposed to. And I wanted to write against the grain to talk in more nuanced ways about the, the, the tradition and the heritage of black education that honored the resistance and that honored the kind of the, the quest for kind of human goodness and flourishing that was at the center of black teachers and the work that they were doing. And that gave us so much. Right. I wanted to make clear that we would not have people like Angela Davis, John Lewis, 
and Martin Luther King had it not been for those teachers who cultivated the leadership qualities and who created the social-emotional context in spite of Jim Crow violence for these people to kind of understand the political mission that they expressed in the world as leaders and as activists. Hmm. It's beautiful. Just, just beautiful. And I, I mean, honestly, it just conjures up, uh, dare we say love, you know, it's just love being the motivating um, factor, love for self, love for black people, um, love for our heritage, our culture, um, just the beauty of just of singing the anthem, right? Every day. That is so rare and unique. Um, as you, uh, pointed out, um, even there just in California, even now, right? That, that's yeah. just something that's just very rare. Um, yeah. and, and, really, and really quickly about that book, uh, We Dare Say Love, which is about, so that, that was work that we, that was work that we did um, in the Oakland Unified School District when I, I was a graduate student at the time, yes. um, just when I was coming into some of these questions about the history of black education, but there had been a major lawsuit against the o- Oakland Unified School District because of the disproportionate kind of disciplining of black um, uh, black boys in the context of those schools. Yes. And a lot of the parents and community members, um, you know, uh, tr- tried to work with the district to try to do something to address this kind of ongoing neglect uh, that, you know, black male students uh, have been experiencing. And so they created for the first time this African-American male achievement initiative and so uh, they were, you know, creating this initiative for the first time. It wasn't something that was hosted outside of the district. It was actually housed in the district, which made it a very important kind of um, a historic kind of policy and, um, and, and initiative. And so we wanted to study what they were doing in creating this. And in many ways, it was interesting because we had all of these community leaders who were not traditional teachers, but who were coming into the context of schools and partnering with district leaders and educators to try to um, create spaces in the context of schools to support black male students um, in thriving and to, tr- and to, and to develop a, a culture of achievement for black male students. Um, and it was just interesting just on the simple fact that, you know, you had these black male instructors teaching courses with black male students. And from the overwhelming majority of these students, this was their first time having a black male teacher. And so we wanted to study that um, experience and to talk about the work that these teachers were doing as, as organic instructors, who many of whom have worked and been community educators in different uh, after school programs and community led um, spaces. Um, but this was a very you know, interesting kind of district community partnership. And so that book, We Dare Say Love, is talking about documenting the first years of that particular initiative and how these um, families and black male instructors cultivated a kind of a pedagogy of love, particularly uh, for the needs of black students and from their own experiences as black male instructors. And that's what that, that study is about. But I should say that while we were doing that work, it was really helpful to reflect on that contemporary moment as I was doing engaging in archival research and writing about the history of black teachers, because yeah. I saw that, that there was a very clear relationship between that kind of work of having to understand one's mission as a teacher as set apart from the dominant norms of the school structure that you're working within and in the broader educational context. And in many ways, that was one of the things that came out from these teachers is that they understood their first priority to be in in allegiance to be to the students Mm -hmm. and not to the structures because there was a clear critique of the structure 
that this, that resonated with the students and that affirmed their experiences. And that's something that, you know, was very useful for me to reflect back and forth on, on the on the present, but also the past as I was writing and thinking about uh, the history of black teachers. That is just um, so rich, so very rich, Dr. Given. Thank you for for um, speaking about um, We Dare Say Love. Um, yeah, We Dare Say Love, because, um, yeah, that's just so helpful. And just in- interesting to see the ways <laughs> that your life has providentially um, been <laughs> orchestrated. You know, so, like all of these things are just uh, in conversation. Um, right. With from your from your educational formation to your area of study, it's it's fascinating and um, and I'm grateful that you're here at the table, and uh, we've learned a great deal from you. And of course, now we want you to talk to our sisters um, and tell them how they can follow you. Let them know about whatever um, the current work that you're working on that you like them to um, to follow and or, or or keep their ears peeled for, and where they can buy your book. Of course, we will include a link to uh, where they can purchase it. But yeah this is your time to talk to the sisters at the table. Right. Um, well, uh, thanks for that. So I am on social media, new to social media. I had to get on uh, um, around the time the book came out, but I'm on Twitter um, at Jarvis R. Givens. Um, so you can definitely follow me there on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook. Um, but my website also has information about upcoming events and other projects that I'm working on. And that's JarvisGivens.com. Um, One of the big things that I'm most excited about is the Black Teacher Archive that I'm doing with Imani Perry, who's a a friend and colleague at Princeton University. Um, And we are essentially working to to locate and preserve the journals that were published by colored teacher associations between the 1920s up until 1970. And these were the professional organizations that Black teachers created. The first one was founded in um, 18... 61, and they existed up and through the Jim Crow period until they were forced to dismantle themselves and merge with uh, white teach, white professional organizations that had previously excluded them and that also <laughs> were the um, staunch advocates of Jim Crow as well. So you can imagine and read into that history in terms of how Black educators became undermined and what came after. Um, but that the Black Teacher Archive is a digital humanities project where we're trying to make these records to preserve them and make them available to research, but also to engage the public um, in uh, in educating ourselves about this important history of Black teachers, and you know, as a way of, of, of reimagining the role of teachers in the work of, of of political advocacy and social justice today. I think these Black teachers in the past offer a very important model for us to look to and learn from as we address contemporary questions. So that's something I'm really excited about, and want folks to kind of keep their eyes open for and to, and to follow along with. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gibbons. It's been a pleasure to have you here at the table. Um, and of course we want to thank our sisters at the table. Uh, let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about fugitive pedagogy. Okay. We going to learn today. I hope y'all learned a lot. <laughs> Using the hashtag truth table. Uh, and black women, y'all know we have a truth table, black women's discipleship group on Facebook. Make sure you follow truth table on Facebook, join our Facebook group, invite your homegirls, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook at truth table, or email us your thoughts at ask truth table. 
um, at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth Table also has a Patreon account so y'all can send your love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable or you can bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truth Table is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York and we have been your hosts, Kemi, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.